Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles. Today on the show is our third episode of Monster Legends. Now, I should probably give the disclaimer that many Monster Legends get pretty dark and can have some disturbing content to certain people. So this is your only warning. Otherwise, you're in for a treat because we got some pretty juicy stuff. From Africa all the way to Chile, we have legends concerning an assortment of strange and bizarre creatures. Every single civilization has its monsters all throughout recorded history. So it can be pretty interesting to look at what these people feared when bump in the night. It can be a look into the underlying psyche of a culture or words of warning to keep people safe from the very real dangers the world has to offer. But it can also be a look at what culture is considered evil or good and certain attributes to be reviled. Monster legends can be cryptic lessons in wisdom, only known when understanding the underlying subtext, too. So there's a lot more to it than the monsters themselves. Though these dark tales are always pretty fascinating for their usually macabre nature, nonetheless. Anyway, let's get into it, shall we? I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. From ancient Greece comes a monster that some scholars believe to be the oldest recorded vampire myth, the Empuse. These creatures are vampiric in nature, but technically by the way the ancient Greeks categorized things, it also falls under the classification of daemon, daemon being where the word demon originates from. But they didn't think of entities as demons in the way we would think of them. A daemon was more a classification for a creature born in another world or mostly living on another plane of existence, but still able to manifest itself or appear in flesh and blood in our world. A daemon could be good, evil, or anything in between, just like people. I guess a daemon could also be defined as an interdimensional being by today's standards. Despite this, though, an empuse is very much inherently evil. In Greek mythology, the empuse are the red-headed daughters of the witch goddess Akati the goddess of ghosts, crossroads, magic, and necromancy, and these daemons act as Hikati's personal attendants. They've got goat or mule-like legs with bronze shoes on their hoofs, horse-like shoes, not human shoes, but otherwise they just pretty much appear as beautiful, seductive women. And being the daughters of the goddess of magic, they also have an assortment of magical abilities. An empuse can cast illusions not only to alter objects' appearances to mortals, but to alter entire location scenery as well. They can make someone think that they're anywhere, like the depths of Hades or Paradise or pretty much anything. Empuse can also shapeshift into almost any form they wish, which they use also to avoid other entities that annoy them by changing into trees and whatnot. Empuse are also very articulate and persuasive, which they'll use to their advantage. So their main arsenal is pretty much all head games, and they'll use all these abilities to feed and sustain themselves. Their favorite prey obviously being mortal men. They'll use their incredible persuasive and alluring skills to entice men into sexual relationships with them, utilizing their abilities as needed in their seduction. 
such as shape-shifting into a woman a man is already interested in, for example, or conjure illusions around him to make a sexual encounter more comfortable. Empuse are insidious in their methodology of luring in their victims. During sex, the vampiric daemon will suck the very life force from their prey. It is their source of food, but also sometimes the Empuse will feed on their victim's flesh, ripping it from the bone and gorging themselves as they rip the body apart in a bloody mess. These monsters sound kind of familiar to succubus, don't they? However, despite how deadly an Empuse is, they're actually not too difficult to avoid. Well, that's if the intended victim doesn't fall for the monster's tricks. A strong will and disciplined mind can see past the illusions they cast as well. But if push comes to shove, an Empuse is actually just as thin-skinned and sensitive as humans when it comes to physical damage. They're also very emotionally sensitive. And if confronted with insults and profanities and the like, they'll essentially run away because their feelings are hurt. They really don't like their vampiric monster nature being brought up to them, because they really don't like to see themselves in that light. But it's also pretty simple just to run away from an Empuse, because all descriptions, references, and lore on them describe the monster's run to be comically slow. So there's a lot of ways to fight them or fend yourself off against them. But it all depends on not falling for the creature's allurements and tricks. Most victims of these monsters have no idea what's going on before it's too late. Interesting enough, the Empuse has become a part of Russian folklore, who appears around harvest time for crops as a widowed woman. It'll try to lure harvesters to their doom, breaking the arms and legs of any farm worker foolish enough to fall for its tricks. This monster legend's from Africa, so forgive me if my pronunciations might be a little bit off. But the Zosa people of Lesotho have a bizarre magical monster in their folklore called a Tikalosh. The Tikalosh's whole purpose is basically to be a familiar to a witch. If you don't know what a familiar is, a familiar is a magical entity that's summoned up through witchcraft to serve the magical practitioner in a variety of ways. A lot of times familiars aren't inherently evil, more so a tool that can be used for good or bad depending on the person they serve and how they're used. But in this case, a Tikalosh is inherently evil. However, they do make an excellent and powerful familiar to a witch, but they come at a high price. See, in order for the summoning of the monster to work, the witch must accept the sacrifice of a family member. One of their relatives will die within a year of the spell being cast. The sacrifice is random and could be anyone, but it's going to hit home. Like a father or a mother, brother or sister, or even one of the magical practitioner's own children. After the witch accepts this, a corpse must then be found. Then the tongue and eyes are removed and the skull must be pierced through with a hot poker. The witch then takes a magical powder whose ingredients are a well-kept secret in witchcraft and blows it into the corpse's mouth. The magical powder then causes the body to convulse and transform. No longer resembling a corpse, the powerful familiar will rise and animate of its own accord, 
A ticklish is always a male entity, even if the corpse used in the spell to summon it was a woman. It looks like a short, baboon-like man who's very hairy. They always have a tall, bulbous forehead with receding hairline. And there's a bizarre sexual nature to the monster, too. A ticklish only has a single butt cheek. And it has a penis that's way longer than practicality would dictate. In fact, its penis is so long, in order to keep it from dragging on the ground, Tikalosh has to sling it over its shoulder. These monsters are adept at using magic. One of the first things that Tikalosh will do is to create a magical stone for itself that gives it the ability to go invisible. Not one for speech, it keeps this magic stone in its mouth basically at all times, never leaving a moment that the creature can't fade from sight if it wants to. But a Tikalosh can also shapeshift though there are limitations in its ability to do so. Because, no matter what form it changes itself into, the monster's always going to have monkey-like physical characteristics. So, its shape-shifting ability isn't the greatest, because it's always going to seem slightly off, and unnatural to look at. But even at the steep cost of the life of a family member to summon it, a Ticklosh has more demands in order to keep it a loyal familiar. The monster requires daily amounts of cow's milk and food, as well as a place to live. But most important to the Tikalosh, it requires the right to have sex with the witch who summoned it whenever it wants. It can't ever be denied sexual gratification, and these monsters are very horny. Though if the magical practitioner happens to be a man who summoned it, not a witch, then, the Tikalosh requires a woman at its disposal to have sex with whenever it wants, willing or no. But if all of its needs are met, then the Tikalosh will be a loyal servant, completely at the person who summoned its disposal no matter what time, day or night. It will be there to serve its master. When it comes down to a physical threat, Tikalosh are pretty fast and nimble, but rarely have a strength greater than a common man so they're not as incredibly overpowered as many monster legends. Their deadliness mostly comes from their incredible sneakiness and magical abilities. They also have a huge weakness in their obsession with sex, which can not only be used against them to lure them into a trap, but also to find one if you happen to come upon a victim of a Tikalosh. Because this monster is a serial rapist and will have its own personal harem of women it repeatedly returns to to sexually assault. Even following these women if they move, or travel hundreds of miles away, it will find them, and it'll feed off their sexual energy like a vampire draining them of their life force, leaving the victim drained physically, emotionally, and mentally. Eventually, these visits by Tikalosh end in the death of the victim. From Caribbean island folklore come the Jumbies. Though to Caribbean lore, the word Jumbies refers to, as a whole, basically all types of vampiric monsters who hunt in the darkness of night. The Jumbie I'm talking about is described as looking like a corpse candle. A corpse candle is an old-timey saying for an entity that's a glowing ball of spectral light. It basically looks like a shiny orb that zooms around defying gravity. Jumbies will only hunt for prey at night, normally looking for people traveling around alone or a straggler in a group. 
but their favorite is to seek out easy meals looking for children. I don't know exactly how, but somehow this glowing ball of spectral light can get the jump on people at night. Jumbies require blood to survive, but someone who's a victim of one will lose much more than just their blood. These monsters are kind of like an incubi or a succubus. They'll drain the very life energy from their victims, including their sexual energy, and if a grown man, their sperm too. Though despite their monstrous taste for blood and life energy, not all jumbies are evil. They can have many alignments from good to evil and everything in between. Jumbies are also seen in the populated areas of the Caribbean, coming out at night to hang out in the dark places the light from the street lamps can't reach. If any jumbies captured on film while wandering around populated areas, they basically just look like an orb. They'll just peek around an urban area, sometimes even able to be seen just outside of one's window. And that's a pretty creepy hunting technique to hunt for people by looking through windows at night while they're sleeping. Jumbies are already frightening, but a wet jumbie becomes incredibly more violent and vengeful, willing and eager to kill at the drop of a hat. For this reason, there's a common ritual in the urban areas of the Caribbean to not throw water out your window at night, because throwing water on a jumbie is an assured, painful demise. Jumbies do have some weaknesses, though. Though they do travel around from their ability to fly, they can only do so over continuous ground. So if running from one, simply jumping over a hole or a ditch will stop the chase immediately. So they pretty much can't fly up a roof either, or fly off a cliff, or even fly across water. It's an important limitation to remember about the monster because it can basically stop a jumbie attack right in its tracks before it gets unpleasant. Jumbies also have an ability that other vampiric creatures of the Caribbean don't, or other vampiric monsters from across the globe for that matter. Since they're a glowing ball of spectral energy, they don't have the ability to speak in any way, telepathic or other. But what they can do to communicate is steal the voice of a child. And the voice is pretty much literally stolen too because the kid can no longer speak unless it's given back. The Jumbie then uses this as a hunting tool to lure out loved ones or friends, which is pretty creepy. People will hear what they think as a child and come to the rescue only for a horrifying revelation. What they like to do is to lure these loved ones of the child whose voice they stole into situations they can't escape from, so the Jumbies can feed on their victim at their leisure over time. For this reason, in the Caribbean, if a child is talking to somebody and not within line of sight, a person will ask the child questions only they would know the answer to. A jumpy is only in its true form at night. During the day, the entity's spectral essence wears a fox human skin, and can actually pass as a normal human being for the most part. It's only at nighttime when the monster sheds this fake human exterior that it truly becomes vulnerable. Someone hunting jumbies can go looking for this shed skin. If it's found, then the hunter should rub salt all over this false jumbie disguise. This will actually destroy it, make it shrivel up and become useless. Jumbies are pretty much invulnerable. This is the only way to kill the monster. Its spectral body can't be exposed to sunlight, and without its protective skin, the monster dies at daybreak.
Next up, we have an interesting monster. Coming into fashion during the Renaissance, we have the homunculus, plural homunculi. The name homunculus means little human being. This artificial person could be created through the use of alchemy, and was one of the greatest accomplishments an alchemist could achieve. It was considered a profound act to manipulate nature to create life through alchemy. A homunculus is an interesting monster because it's pretty off and not quite human, but it's still a rational creature. There's even medieval writing out there on how to create a homunculus, and it's pretty bizarre to say the least. In a text called The Book of the Crow, basically everything you gotta do is laid out. First, you gotta get a bunch of human semen and seal it in a flask. The, the semen of the, the alchemist, not just anyone's. Then you need a sunstone, animal blood, a cow, sulfur, a magnet, and green tortilla. Oh, and a large letter glass vessel. These ingredients may seem baffling, but don't worry because it gets a lot weirder. To start with, you have to cover the sunstone in the semen. Then you have to inseminate the cow with the human sperm, and plug up the cow's vagina with the sunstone. When completed with this, you then have to smear the creature's genitals with the blood of another animal. Afterwards, place the cow in a dark place where you know for sure that the sun won't shine. It's important that the cow is only fed on the blood of other animals. Then, after a certain amount of time, you have to unplug the cow's vagina with the sunstone. And then you have to mush up into a powder with the sulfur, the magnet, and green tortilla. Stir the concoction only with the sap of a white willow. If everything was done correctly, then the cow should have given birth to a small, deformed humanoid creature. However, it's not going to be anything recognizably human, at least at first. In the text, it's referred to as an unformed substance. In order for it to turn into a homunculus, the alchemist has to throw it into the letter glass container and then throw in the concoction made with the sunstone. Eventually, the monster will grow into something at least resembling a human though small and weird looking. And when it's ready to come out, the newborn homunculus is going to be insanely hungry. To feed it, the cow that was the monster's surrogate mother needs to be decapitated. The cow's blood then has to be poured inside the homunculus' container over the span of seven days to feed it. And it's over the seven days that the homunculus becomes a full-grown homunculus, I guess? But the little monster is then ready to serve its creator. I did come across other medieval techniques to create a homunculus, but none so baffling and gross. This artificial monster is capable of a bunch of nifty things, though, like making the full moon appear on the last day of the month. Or they can give a person the ability to turn into an animal, like an ape, sheep, or even a cow. They can also give an alchemist the ability to walk on water, or bestow prescience, allowing the alchemist to know things that are going on across very vast distances. Another type of homunculus an alchemist can make gives the power to talk to, see, and interact with spirits, or even demons if the alchemist is bold enough. The last type of homunculus an uh, alchemist can create can control the weather to an extent, and somehow create ridiculously poisonous snakes. Homunculi can be very loyal servants, even killing on command if the alchemist ordered it. But there's also stories of alchemists treating their pet creature recklessly, to the point the homunculus turns on its master at the most inopportune moment, killing them or bringing tragedy to the alchemist's life. 
During medieval times in the Renaissance, just speaking of creating a homunculus was enough to be considered a heretic and be killed by the church. But this was back when the people of Europe were under the tyrannical rule of dogma. The church's word was law, and many suspected alchemists paid with their lives pursuing their esoteric science. To the church, only God could create life, so if man created life, he was either possessed by the devil or a practitioner of witchcraft. And as history shows, they did not suffer the heretic to live, so creating a homunculi had to be done with the utmost secrecy. But if they could pull it off, an alchemist would have a loyal and powerful servant capable of many magical feats. During the medieval and renaissance eras of Europe, homunculi were pretty popular. There were a bunch of stories, legends, and folklore about them everywhere. To the point the monster legend almost took on a life of its own beyond just alchemy. In this day and age, the homunculus can be... I guess it can be analogous to our modern technology. And that soon humans creating artificial life will very much be a reality, such as cloning for an example. One thing that's really funny though is that, well, back in the medieval times the people then didn't know this, but alchemists' writings weren't meant to be taken literally. Everything they wrote was in code, either metaphorically or symbolic. This was done to keep the unworthy or the profane away from their higher knowledge. These cryptic messages and codes and metaphors were also used to keep the watchful eye of the church at bay. Only someone who was trained on what to look for could actually read and understand any of these texts. Which is why most alchemy writings seem so insane and bizarre and impossible. But it was all just part of the game. This helped a lot in keeping alchemists from being burned at the stake for heresy by the church, and it kept their secret societies and knowledge alive for millennia. In truth, though, alchemists' writings were about an esoteric path of secret spiritual ascension. But if everything was symbolic and metaphor and secrets and code, it makes me wonder what all that sperm and cow stuff to make a homunculi is supposed to be symbolic for. In Japanese folklore, there's an interesting kind of river monster known as a kappa. Kappa roughly translating to a river child in Japanese. They do kind of resemble kids, but their skin is green. What further distinguishes them from a normal child is their unnerving round eyes, nose that's way longer than normal, webbed fingers and toes, as well as turtle shells as backs. But the weirdest part of this monster's appearance is a dent on top of their head that goes deep enough to hold water like a bowl. Oh, and they have like a gross fish smell to them too, basically across the board. And the water that sits inside their head dent is pretty important to the kappa. In fact, the water in the head bowl is a representation of the kappa's power, and can actually be used against the kappa. These monsters have an obsession with following ritual and courtesy. So if one is ever under attack by a kappa and it's distracted enough, bowing to the kappa can cause it to reactively bow back. And this will cause the monster to spill all of the water it keeps in its head dent, rendering it basically harmless for the time being since it's lost its sense of power. For the most part though, a kappa will be content to stay in its watery home. This is where it does the majority of its hunting and feeding. They basically just wait underwater, stalking prey patiently, just like a crocodile. But when a suitable victim comes around to drink from the water, 
He'll reach out and grab it, pulling it under. As the victim drowns, they'll bite with their razor-sharp teeth right into its anus and vampirically suck out its blood for sustenance. Yep, they're vampires that suck blood out of butts. Though they do love to stay in the water, a kappa can leave their home and walk on land pretty easily and naturally. However, they only do this to steal melons and cucumbers, sexually assault women, or rip the liver out of people. I did say that kappa resemble children, but they're actually pretty physically imposing. They're extremely strong for their size and skilled martial artists in sumo wrestling. So straight up physically fighting one without a weapon is kind of suicidal. But even though they're brutal fighters and vampires who suck blood out of butts, they're actually talented healers as well, being excellent at the art of bone setting and many medicinal skills. Kappa are unique though among all the vampiric monsters because they enjoy normal types of food. Well, actually obsession would be more accurate. They have a massive cucumber fetish. It doesn't matter what's going on, if they're in danger, if they're out for prey, or if they're attacking people. Whatever a kappa's doing, it will stop immediately if there's a cucumber around. And they'll do whatever it takes to steal a cucumber away whenever the opportunity presents itself. So if one knows that they're going to be journeying near Kappa, keeping a cucumber on hand can be the difference between life and death. After all, the last thing that anyone wants is all of their blood sucked out of their anus. Cucumbers also have a magical protective use with Kappa. One can write their last name on a cucumber and give it to the monster. It's a powerful boon because it will not only protect the person who offered the cucumber, but also that person's whole family will be protected from Kappa attacks though this protection does only last for a limited amount of time. Though Kappas are vampiric monsters capable of casually committing horrendous crimes, they're not pure evil per se, or mindlessly destructive and malevolent like many other monsters. Kappa have an intelligence about them, and can be pretty cultured. For example, a Kappa can actually be pretty respectful and courteous. They're also trustworthy and honorable monsters with a strong sense of dignity. They have a lot of reverence for ritual and tradition. They can also be reasoned with or even have bargains. Such as, instead of just killing somebody outright, they can be challenged to a wrestling match or some kind of test of wits where they'll only kill their victim if they lose. They're also very willing to enter into mutually beneficial agreements. They're usually willing to avoid all kinds of mischievous behavior for a steady supply of cucumbers. From the Philippines comes a demonic monster that's created every single time a fetus is aborted, known as the Tikbalang, and their appearance is pretty bizarre. They look like a tall man just with a horse head. For the most part, Tikbalang have jet black skin, but there's stories of rarer Tikbalang that have white skin, the white ones being far more powerful and magically potent. These monsters have massively oversized penises. Their thick horse manes have bony spikes that come out of them, and instead of normal horse teeth, their large mouth is filled with grotesquely odd bulbous teeth. A Tikbalang's feet are clawed, and their legs are really, really long, like creepy long, to the point that when they sit down, their knees are above their head. These things are nightmare fuel, basically. 
Just the sight of one can free someone in place or be a catalyst for insanity. Luckily, Tikbalang are nocturnal and never come out during the day at all. One of their favorite things to do is abduct women, then throw them into bamboo cages. The women are then kept for varying amounts of time, the longer bits being far more terrifying to the victim. And these abductions, for the most part, all end in the same way, with the woman suffering a horribly grisly death. These murders can range from outright straightforward murder to incredibly creative and disturbing. The Tikbalang will also play tricks on travelers and try to lead them astray either to kill them when they get lost after a lot of physical trauma, or they'll just try and lead travelers off their path to get lost and die by the elements, starvation, dehydration, or just becoming food for beasts in the surrounding area. These monsters may be pretty dangerous with their claws and teeth, but their deadliness goes far beyond being a mere physical threat, because Tikbalang have supernatural abilities to complement their already formidable attributes such as altering the laws of probability around people causing them bad luck. They can also spread sickness and cause outbreaks of disease in communities. But Tikbalang can also penetrate the very minds of their victims, like bewildering people, causing them to become confused when they weren't a moment before. But a more frightening thing they can do in this way is to cause people to lose their senses. Like, uh, like making somebody go blind spontaneously, for example. When a Tikbalang wants to get away, they can make a dusty cloud with falling stones inside, basically teleporting away. They also have the ability to just straight up go invisible, so the whole teleporting cloud thing seems kind of like overkill. They can also take on any form or size they wish, though this is more to assist in the way they enjoy sadistically causing psychological trauma in people than anything practical. But it does help them in the hunt, though as victims may try and hide in hard-to-reach or compact places too small for their normal form to fit inside. Also, a victim on the roof of a building or hiding in a tree can't escape a tickling because it can just make itself large. So if this thing's after you, you're just basically screwed. Tickling mostly live in trees or bamboo or banana groves, but they also like to make underneath bridges their lair or basically anywhere near a hot spring. They're not too picky, though. They'll also make use of anywhere where there's not a lot of people or nature's really taken over. So people who live in cities or heavily populated areas pretty much are safe from an encounter with one. These demonic entities enjoy murdering people in extremely grisly fashion, while also inflicting as much psychological trauma as possible. There's really no way to fight one, but there are a few ways to avoid such a horrifying fate. For example, if a tickling is near, its call can be heard. It goes tick-tick, which is a heads-up you've stumbled into one's territory. But if you just have to get through its territory for some emergency or whatever, you can request passage by saying, by your leave, or by flipping your shirt inside out. Then hopefully you can get by without dying horribly. However, for those with immense courage or suicidal recklessness, a tickling can be brought under a person's control, like a servant. All someone has to do is make a specially designed rope, then jump on the monster's back somehow. From there, it's just a matter of holding on by the rope as the tickling frantically tries to shake the person off. But if they can just hold on, then eventually the monster will exhaust itself and admit defeat. When this happens, then you have to pick off three of the creature's biggest spines from its mane 
From there, all you gotta do is craft the spine things into talismans. Then, boom. You have a horrifying demonic monster as a servant, who will carry out any order you give it no matter how deplorable or evil. They can murder rivals, protect villages from other monsters, or even perform manual labor. But these monsters will want their freedom back. They possess a magic jewel that's actually the source of their supernatural power. And they'll always eventually offer it to their master in exchange for their freedom. Though, without their magic jewel, they will most likely vanish from the physical plane of existence. At least until the Tickbalang gets its hands on a new magic jewel, and then returns to seek vengeance on the person who originally forced it into servitude. Alright, we'll be back after a, a quick break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Please support the show by using our sponsor, Blueberry. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes, as well as pretty much all podcast hubs. Don't worry about contracts or expensive fees. You have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. You won't ever have to leave your own website. Blueberry hosting really is the key to podcast success. Try it for a month free and a month of free podcast statistics by going to crypticchroniclespodcast.com. At the bottom of the homepage, you'll see the Blueberry link. By going through us, you'll really be helping us out. Also, make sure to support the show by joining the Chronicler's Vault. By supporting us on Patreon, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes. The more financial support we get, the more content we can produce. Anything will help, so if you can't afford the Chronicler's Vault, simply donate whatever you can, and we would greatly appreciate it. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click the donation button on the bottom of the homepage. To keep up to date with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, or our Facebook page. Throwing the Facebook page a like would also be very awesome. Thank you for supporting Cryptic Chronicles. Most of all, thanks for listening. And from a mixture of a few cultures, we have the Shadim, singularly called the Shed. The legends of the Shadim originally came from the Chaldean mythology, but much like the Canaanite culture, a lot of their mythology was absorbed into Hebrew, or Jewish mythology. In one legend, the Shadim are the offspring of Adam and Lilith, Lilith being the less well-known first wife of Adam in certain tales, sometimes even being called the mother of demons. But in other legends, there are the descendants of these serpent beings. The serpent in the Garden of Eden who tricked Eve being one of these serpents. However, there's an even more interesting third legend of these monsters. This alternate Hebrew legend says that God was in the middle of making this Shadim, but had to stop because of the Sabbath, and never got around to finishing them because on the Sabbath, all work was considered complete.
This is believed to be the source of their anger towards finished beings in creation like humans, and explains their chaotic nature without any defined purpose. In any case, they became monsters of malevolence with a chip on their shoulder towards humankind. Their name, the Shadim, loosely translates to Destroyer. The appearance of a shed is pretty twisted and bizarre. They're kinda humanoid, but mixed with animal bits. In the book of Numbers in the Bible, they're described as having legs and feet of a rooster, and either have a bull head or a scary human-like head with bull horns. They mostly inhabit the world between worlds and aren't visible to human eyes of the average person. But even though they mostly live on a separate plane of existence, there's a trick to tangibly detect if there's one present in the area. If one throws ash on the ground, a shed will leave behind their large chicken-like footprints. One of the Shadim's main abilities is to possess inanimate objects, and there really isn't a limit to this ability. In demonology, these creatures are usually behind dolls and such that appear to be haunted or move on their own. But they're most well known for possessing statues and making them do odd things. With this knowledge, it can be assumed that many legends concerning haunted statues or the like are the handiwork of a shed. Though they don't stop at dolls or statues or... Like I said, there's no limitations. They'll possess anything. Sometimes even for centuries. They also like to follow around the dead, so it can be found lurking pretty much anywhere dead people are. Like, uh, cemeteries or whatever. Though there, there's no restrictions on where they can travel, so they can be found pretty much anywhere. I mean, you could have one in your house right now and not even know it. That old clock in the closet could totally be a home for a shed. It's interesting to note that the ancient Hebrews would actually sacrifice to the Shadim to appease them. And there was a belief that sinners could purify themselves by sacrificing their daughters to the Shadim, be it blood, the girl's life, or even a sexual thing. I really couldn't find any information on specifics about this sacrifice. From Sussex folklore comes a legendary dragon-like monster known as the Knucker. Knucker lived in a well located in a town by the name of Lemonster, and caused a lot of trouble to the people who lived in the area. The monster, for the most part, would prey on livestock like sheep or cows, but people were on the menu too. There's many different versions of this monster legend, with many events unfolding differently depending on which version of the tale is being told but they all end with the eventual demise of Knucker. In one version of the tale, after Knucker had been rampaging for some time, the King of Sussex offered a bounty to anyone who could slay the beast. The prize? His own daughter's hand in marriage. A wandering knight in the area takes up the quest to battle the dragon, and is successful. It's basically a classic knight versus dragon tale. Another version revolves around the exploits of a local farm boy. This folk hero's name is Jim Polk. And like many fairy tales, he uses wits over brawn to outsmart the Knucker instead of fighting it head on. Everyone who tried to face the monster before him died horrible deaths. So Jim Polk decided to poison some pies and leave them out for the dragon to find. When Knucker came across the pies, the monster ate him up without hesitation, 
then died in agony soon after. However, it didn't work out for Jim as well as he thought, because either through magical means like a curse or something, or who knows, Jim Polk fell over dead during the victory celebration from unexplainable reasons. In still another version of the tale, the hero goes by the name of Jim Puddock of Wick. In this version, it's the mayor of the town who offers up the reward to kill Knucker. Everything pretty much plays out the same way as the last version of the story, other than this time Jim doesn't die. He gets to collect the reward, and everything works out for him, and it's just kind of meh, because it's like a stereotypical fantasy. Then there's the final version of the story, in which the hero is yet again named Jim. But this time, he creates a single massive poison pie to trick Knucker into eating. Jim's plan goes through, but there wasn't enough poison in the mega pie to actually kill Knucker. It does mess the dragon up pretty good, though. It made Knucker sluggish, drowsy, and without reason. The monster wandered about haphazardly for some time before eventually driving itself to exhaustion, eventually collapsing and leaving itself defenseless. Jim, kind of upset that his poison plan didn't work, decided not to let the opportunity slide by. So he took an axe to the monster, relieving it of its head. But Jim gets screwed over in this version of the legend too. So it's not as bad. See, he drags the head of the monster back to the king as proof of his deeds. But the king pulls a fast one. The king tells Jim that he's not of noble blood, so he can't allow him to marry his daughter as a reward. However, the king doesn't totally screw Jim as you might think. Instead, he hails him as a hero across the land, and gives him a ton of gold so he could live the rest of his life in comfort and ease. And the king held a massive feast in his honor, making Jim into a legendary monster hunter well-known by all with much renown. And, well, the, the Jim from this version of the legend lived a long and enjoyable life. When he eventually died, he was given the honor of being buried at the Church of St. Mary Magna. With an elaborate and massive tombstone, the locals till this day call the Slayer's Stone. The country of Chile in South America probably has the most depressing and sympathetic monster I've talked about so far, known as the Inunche. These monsters are unique of the ones I've talked about because they were once human. The process of creating an Inunche begins with a witch stealing a baby boy. See, in Chile, witches basically across the board have their lairs in underground caves, which are only accessible through underground lake entrances. The witch will kidnap the newborn child and take it to one of these underwater cave lairs. And that's when stuff starts to get dark. Inside her lair, the witch will lay the baby on a stone slab, then proceed to break one of its legs in many places and twist it over the baby's back. And the baby is completely awake and in excruciating pain during this entire process. Then the witch takes the other leg, arms, feet, and hands, and breaks them into disjointed, twisted, unnatural positions. The witch then cuts a hole through the baby's right shoulder blade, and she shoves the broken arm through it, giving off the appearance that the baby's arm is growing out of its back. The baby's head is also bent and misshapen over time, usually by sticks or pieces of wood being tightly bound to the infant's skull. 
All these grotesque deformities leave the child monstrous looking to say the least, and also in a constant state of agony, which is all pretty severely messed up. When the witch is done with mangling the baby's body, she then prepares a magical ointment and rubs it all over the child. This causes thick hair to grow all across the baby's body and allows it to still grow up and develop past infancy despite all of its mangled deformities. The whole ritual is completed by the witch taking a knife and cutting the child's tongue down the center. So it has a like a like a forked tongue like a snake. The baby's then fed raw human flesh. The magical transformation set in stone and thus an Inunche is born. From that point forward, the Inunche's diet will solely consist of human flesh. The witch will either bring it victims to murder and eat, or will just bring the monster remnants of flesh she hacks off people she kills. But the monster will never be able to leave the witch's cave lair thanks to its deformities. It's literally unable to swim. So the creature will spend its whole life in the witch's cave unless the witch uses her magic to assist the creature from the lair. It doesn't really matter though because the whole reason a witch creates an Inuche is to have a personal guard of her domain. They kill any intruder who comes into the cave whether by accident or even on purpose to confront the witch. Which has led to many unaware swimmers who happen to come upon one of these caves to never return. Because Inunches are really good at their job. Upon noticing an intruder... An Anunche has an otherworldly blood-curdling scream that can freeze a person with fear permanently. This allows the Anunche to slowly eat them alive. Even though it's not the most physically imposing monster, its blood-curdling scream more than makes up for any of its lackings. There is a trick you can use to confront one though. In fact, it won't even attack you and you can move through the witch's cave without any problems. All you gotta do is sneak up on it and kiss it on its butt before it notices you. For reasons, this makes the monster indifferent. The Naga are a humanoid serpent-type race of beings found in folklore all over the world. This monster legend revolves around such a Naga from Hindu mythology named Karkotaka. The tale begins with the Naga challenging the most powerful sage in India to a game of chance. But Karkotaka made the mistake of cheating during the contest. This really pissed off the sage to the point that he cursed Karkotaka. Though looking at curses throughout folklore, it could have gone a lot worse. The sage cursed the Naga with immortality, which actually seems kind of awesome. But the curse also imprisoned Karkotaka in his forest. So though he may have become immortal, his world became a whole lot smaller. However, the sage did make it so the curse could be broken, but only if a man came to help him. And this man had to have two prerequisites. First, he had to be named Nala. And second, he had to be a monarch royalty. Unknowingly to Karkotaka, there was actually a monarch named Nala that existed at the time. <laughs> Which makes me think that the sage who cursed the Naga knew how this was all going to play out anyway. Seems more like the sage never truly meant to imprison Karkotaka in his forest for eternity, 
more so the sage was just teaching the Naga a lesson. It also seems like the only person who could break the curse, King Nala, had some lessons to learn too. Nala was a youthful and handsome king who was blessed with a lovely, loyal, and loving wife, but unfortunately there were many key skills that he lacked. He wasn't... He was a pretty crappy king. It all seemed too much to him, and he was pretty young to be a sovereign ruler after all. I mean, not only is the game of politics deadly, but he found the whole responsibility of being a monarch completely overwhelming. He was unprepared to juggle all the noble houses, the bureaucracy, and the reality of governing an economy for an entire nation. Not to mention commanding a military. So, inevitably the king's kingdom began to dwindle, and his royal prestige steadily receded. The whole ordeal making King Nala very, very depressed. The sadness that engulfed him allowed the goddess Kali to take possession of him. Now, Kali isn't an evil deity per se, more so a force of nature that transcends mankind's sense of morality. Kali is the goddess of time, creation, destruction, and power. But when her essence possessed King Nala, she did it as the destroyer. Kali caused the king to lose everything he had, basically. She influenced him to do a whole bunch of self-destructive things, the worst of which being the loss of his reason, causing the king to lose his entire kingdom to his brother in a game of dice. By this point, Nala was disgraced, shamed, and humiliated, so he fled from all he knew, eventually coming upon the woods in which Karkotaka was imprisoned. As former King Nala walked through the woods, a fire erupted out of nowhere with unknown origins and engulfed the woods in an inferno, burning everything to ashes. King Nala obviously frantically tried to escape the woods before being burned to death, but while doing so, he heard a cry for help. Though Nala was possessed by Kali the Destroyer, he still retained his humanity, so he turned around and returned into the burning woods. And it was then that Nala came upon the monster Karkotaka. The Naga was cursed and unable to leave the woods, so he was pretty much doomed to die. Instead, King Nala lifted Karkotaka and took him to safety, which broke the curse the sage placed on him from the beginning of the legend. Now, you might think it awkward for a former human king to be hanging out with a humanoid snake monster, but the two naturally got along fine and even became pretty quick friends. It was when this friendship blossomed that the god Indra, king of the highest heaven, spoke to Karkotaka and warned him that Kali the Destroyer still had a strong influence in Nala, and that as long as she possessed him, the former king's self-destruction wouldn't end anytime soon. Heeding the warning of the divine and understanding that helping his friend meant hurting him, the Naga monster lashed out, attacking Nala and envenoming him. As the venom coursed through the former king's body, it caused him to shrivel up and become frail. He wasn't even recognizably himself anymore. For good reason, this pissed off Nala and he accused the monster of betrayal, though Karkotaka denied it. Instead, he told the former king that he now had the perfect disguise. Nala was known for his handsomeness and because he was once king, his image was common in art. Before being envenomed, there were many people who would recognize him. But now, no one would recognize him. He could travel freely, and he didn't have to run from his problems. So Nala journeyed to another land, and studied the leadership and wisdom 
of another king. After a lot of dedication, Nala gained enlightenment. And once enlightened, Kali the Destroyer left his body completely of her own free will. He would no longer be haunted by personal demons and self-destructive behavior. It was then that the monster Kakotaka gave his friend a magic cloak that restored him to his former self, removing all the effects of the venom. The handsome young king was back, enlightened, and better than ever. The monster then told him to return home and face himself. And in a series of events, not only reunited his kingdom, becoming king again, but reunited and reconciled with his loving wife. And now one of the most legendary cryptids of Europe. The Beast of Gévaudan. The creature stalked the mountainous south-central French region of Le Gévaudan in the mid-1760s, and left the kill count of over half a hundred people in its wake. Many of the peasants in the area at the time cried out for the king's justice, declaring that a loup-garou was killing the small folk in droves and that there was nothing they could do to protect themselves. A loup-garou being the, the French word for werewolf. Oddly enough, all descriptions of the beast are similar, which is pretty rare among mass panics concerning monstrous cryptids. The contemporary description is that the creature was wolf-like in appearance, but much bigger than any common wolf. Its front legs were slightly shorter than the back, with massive talons that dragged in the dirt. Its head was massive and in the shape of a greyhound bearing enormous fangs. Its hair was reddish with small straight ears and a it had a wide, muscular chest of white hair and a streak of thick black hair, almost like a mohawk that ran down its spine. In some cases, the peasants reported that the thing could walk on two feet like a man, but the majority of descriptions dictate that the beast of Gévaudan was more wolf-like in nature. The first sightings were in June 1764. There weren't any known fatalities until the following month of July, though. But the bodies did start to pile up. And with each gruesome death, the creature's renown spread. Survivors began to gather together telling tales of their encounters with the beast, and lamenting the lost loved ones that the creature devoured. According to the peasantry, the monster couldn't be killed in any formal manner. While defending themselves, the survivors had stabbed the beast, tried to run it through with lances, and even discharged firearms hitting the creature multiple times, but to no avail. Hunters had taken it upon themselves to end the terror, and claimed to have wounded the beast of Gévaudan many times, but it always reappeared elsewhere soon after, seemingly unharmed. With rumors abounding through France of the creature's invulnerability and unstoppable path of destruction, panic began to spread among the lower classes, and their terror was only equaled by their fascination. No longer able to just brush aside the rumors of a werewolf terrorizing the people as superstitious nonsense anymore, King Louis XV of France sent a cavalry division from the royal army into Le Gévaudan to deal with the monster and put the peasants to ease. The soldiers were expecting to find a large wolf who gained a taste for human flesh. Instead, they found a whole community shaken to its very core with fright. The soldiers witnessed the beast with their own eyes on many occasions as they hunted it, astonished at the accuracy with which the monster had been described to the king. 
They also shot their guns on the beast of Jevudan many times. But like usual, the beast always managed to escape. Though slowly, and I mean slowly, the creature's appearances and killings dwindled, to the point they eventually died out altogether for a time. It was at this point that the Royal Cavalry Commander declared that they'd killed it, and that the monster had died from the wounds inflicted upon it by the King's soldiers. So, the Cavalry Division packed up and left the area, telling all they met that the beast had been slain, and they were all free to go about their lives as usual once more. Though, as I'm sure you can assume, that shortly after the Cavalry Division left, the killings began anew. The beast of Jevudan was alive and well. Desperate to get rid of it, a massive bounty had been placed upon the beast's head. This drew the most hardened and grizzled hunters from all over France to travel to the mountainous region and claim the prize. Many never returned from the woods or areas they searched for the beast in, only for their mangled, desiccated bodies to be found later. Others would come upon the beast and survive the encounter, at least claiming to have wounded it. But there was a lot of hunters that just killed any wolf they came across not really believing in the werewolf monster tales. Still, the hunters and peasants kept on dying in horrifying ways. Nothing seemed to be able to stop the beast. Villagers abandoned their homes, farmers left their farms, and only the foolish went outside alone. Entire villages were left to become ghost towns. The intellectuals of France, trying to explain the phenomenon, believed a new species of monstrous animal had been let loose in the countryside, something perhaps from Africa or even the Americas. But nothing could ever be concluded, other than the body count piling up with seemingly no end. By this time, word of the horror had spread far and wide. The beast of Jevudan had began to gain international fame. However, it did turn out that the beast was not as invincible as was previously thought. Because on the evening of June 19th, 1767, it was brought down after a vicious fight by a hunter named John Chastel, whom used silver bullets. The skilled fighter had only managed to slay the beast after shooting it many times at point-blank range with various pistols. The beast's total kill count was around 60 people men, women, and children all being fair game to the monster. When its body was taken, it was cut open by doctors revealing many bones inside of its stomach. But the beast of Jevudan's reign of terror had finally come to an end. The creature's corpse was paraded all throughout Le Jevudan to the praises of all the peasantry. Eventually, they made their way to King Louis XV, whom conveniently ordered the corpse to be immediately disposed of. The beast was buried in an unmarked grave whose location has been lost to history. that's all for today if you enjoyed this show even just a little bit please consider supporting us on patreon by joining the chronicler's vault for bonus episodes of the show as a thank you just go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com to do so or donate whatever you can any little bit will help 
Though there will always be free episodes, the cost to make them is substantial and time-consuming. The producer and I would appreciate any help you have to offer. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes as well as many other podcast apps. Follow us on Tumblr, Twitter, but especially our Facebook page to be kept up to date on all Cryptic Chronicles content. And if you're interested in starting your own podcast, consider our sponsor, Blueberry, to get started. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you can get one free month of the best podcast stats and one free month of the best podcast hosting. Just go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the links we have at the bottom of the homepage. We get a cut of every sale, so it would really help us out and support the show. It's what the producer and I use on this podcast, and it's easily the best on the market. In this day and age, it's actually really important to support independent creators. But blah, 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 blah. Until next time, I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles.